0: 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is where we'll be today. We also, I'll mention this as you turn there, 2 Corinthians 4. We also want to keep those uh, in our church family who are traveling in our prayers. The Dana's and two thirds of the Drapers are gone on their way to Hawaii. And, uh, the Stuckers are on their way back from Hawaii, <laughs> so, so maybe we should start a, a mission there. Maybe we should be missionaries to Hawaii. Yeah. Who's signing up, right? <clears throat> but uh, pray for those traveling uh, and those who are sick. We have others who are traveling and those who are out for various reasons. Keep them in your prayers, okay? But 2 Corinthians 4 is where we'll be today, and uh, how about I read verses 6 and 7, and then we'll continue into this study. Starting in verse 6, it says, "'For God who said, "'Light shall shine out of darkness, "'is the one who has shone in our hearts "'to give the light of the knowledge "'of the glory of God in the face of Christ. "'But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, "'so that the surpassing greatness of the power "'will be of God and not from ourselves.'" This is just an amazing passage, a great passage, and I hope to do it justice here this morning. But as you read through these two verses, you see that light and treasure are spoken of and used interchangeably in these two verses. The light that we have from God and the treasure that we have from God speaking of the same thing. And and light is just a fascinating ordeal altogether. Light is both a particle and a wave. Is that right, Jerry? Oh, thank you. Our resident scientist, (laughs) a particle and a wave. And in recent years, we have, as a society, figured out how to convert light into energy. We have this solar power craze that's going on, and and it's easy enough to just look at the shallow details of it and say, yeah, there's light that shines on a big black or brown thing, and then there's a cord that comes out that runs my hairdryer or whatever, right? You know, you think that's how it works. But if we were pressed as to how to, how that all works, to explain in detail how this stuff that's just like not tangible at all comes to power our cars and our houses and all sorts of things, I think we'd be pretty hard-pressed to explain how that works. Maybe some of us could. And if you can, and explain it to like a five-year-old, then try to explain it to me because I'd like to know more. I just don't get it. But the basics are simple enough to understand, aren't they? Light comes in from without, giving power, charging Things on the other end. And in this basic sense, I think we have an idea, a good illustration of what is happening in the life of the Christian as explained in verses 6 and 7 in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. God is the one who brings light to shine out of darkness, the darkness of our hearts. We don't conjure our own light, we can't conjure our own light. But in our hearts, our dark and depraved hearts that are ravaged by sin, we have light coming in from without through the glory of God, the face of Christ in the gospel, the knowledge of God's glory that enters into our hearts upon initial belief at salvation, the moment you are justified by faith. That's a treasure. It's this, this light that illumines the darkness. And verse 7 says, this is a treasure in an earthen vessel, a clay pot, we are beholding and embracing God's glory in Jesus Christ through the gospel. This makes us rich, doesn't it? This gives us a treasure that you just cannot put a value on because it's, it's beyond any kind of earthly measurement that we could ever have for what makes us rich. When Jesus was walking this earth and going about teaching, he said in John chapter 6, verse 40, this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. Can you put a price tag on that? To behold the Son of God, to believe in the Son of God, to have eternal life, to have the assurance of resurrection. This is is a great treasure. This is an incomparable treasure that we have in life. The word for treasure that's found here in our text today in 2 Corinthians 4-7, it's the same word that's used to talk about the gifts of the wise men, the gold and frankincense and myrrh. That type of treasure, though, isn't even worth to be compared with the treasure of eternal life, a knowledge of priceless value that we have the glory of God within. In Colossians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible Paul was writing to this church at the city of Colossae and he says, starting in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are allowed to see you and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love. Now listen to this. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ Himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you have Christ, you have wealth. If you have Christ, you have all the treasures you could possibly have. If you have Christ through the gospel as your Savior, you have the light. You have what Paul says is the greatest treasure. But by contrast, we see in our verse today in verse 7, by contrast our bodies are earthen vessels. What's inside the vessel is priceless. But this container, if you will, your bag of bones that you're carrying around, that's not so priceless, is it? You are but a clay pot in and of yourself, but you are containing now light from God, treasure from God. And this is, this is one of those doctrines I love to teach. I hope to just teach it more and more throughout whatever time God gives me on earth. That God, even though He is far away, infinite, transcendent, at the same time, He is right here, isn't He? At the same time, it could be said that God stands outside of man as His Lord and Judge. But at the same time, for those who are in Christ, for those who have been born again, for those who are Christians he is right here within our hearts. That is an amazing doctrine. He's not only transcendent, but he's imminent. He's not only infinite, but he's personal. Isaiah 57 talks about how God dwells on a high and holy hill and also with the humble and contrite of heart. Same time, he's dwelling in both places. And we get this idea here, don't we, that God is full of light. The darkness cannot be in His presence. All darkness flees from the presence of God. God is light, Scripture says. And yet, here He is in an earthen vessel, in a clay pot, in a common container. This word for vessel that we see in verse 7 is a very common New Testament term for our bodily existence, that God has created us as Vessels, and now he says, "In this vessel, as a Christian, you have light within." Perhaps you've heard the phrase, "Don't judge a book by its cover." Now there are some books I do judge by the cover, and I don't feel bad about it at all. I see some covers and I say, "I know what that's about," and I don't want anything to do with that. All right, but there are lots of books you can't do that with. You have to read the content of the book to understand. And actually, as someone who's a bit of a book collector, even a used book collector, I know that it's not just the ink that's written on the pages, but there's all kinds of stuff contained in used books if you get them from people who like to put stuff in books. I've gotten used books that had all kinds of interesting treasures in them, postcards and receipts from Europe and receipts from other places, little handwritten notes, even signatures from the author that apparently the seller didn't know was in there. And I know uh, Virginia has her own stories of finding things in books at her bookstore. She told me of finding quite a bit of cash here recently in one of the books. And so you can't look at just a book and say, well, that's of no value. You just don't know. And even though a book may be very plain, may be very old, may be worn and stained and everything else, you'll never know what kind of treasures lie within until you either read it or shake it out like we do with birthday cards sometimes, right? And see what's in there. We don't know the treasure that's within, and as Christians, we can say, you definitely don't want to judge us by our outside, but you want to understand what we have within, the divine light and the divine treasure, God himself dwelling within. In Robert Gramacchi's commentary, he wrote, Believers are instructed to lay up treasures in heaven, citing Matthew chapter 6, but this treasure has been deposited by God within the Christian's present body. The paradox is that inestimable wealth has been placed within inexpensive containers. It is like precious jewels stored in a coffee can. Thought that was a pretty good illustration too. Robert Grimacki, by the way, passed away this week, 89 years old. Uh, He taught at seminary until he was 80. And uh, I saw from his son this week who teaches at my alma mater that he passed away, married to his wife for 68 years, 69 years, I think it said, Pretty amazing life. But the point that he's making here is so valuable, no pun intended, that we have jewels from God contained within. We have the treasure of God contained within like jewels in a coffee can. We are clay vessels. That's, if your translation says earthen vessels, that's really clay pots would be a good translation of that, which are just cheap, aren't they? And common. You go to Hobby Lobby, you go to Dollar Tree, you can walk through and find all sorts of earthen vessels, all kinds of clay pots that are very cheap, very inexpensive, very common. But what matters is what's inside. Someone might buy one of those and use it as a wastebasket. Someone might buy one of those and hide precious jewels. And that makes all the difference. It's like a pearl trapped in, a, in an old, ugly oyster, worn and, and washed by the waves, Jesus used that illustration too, didn't he, about the pearl of great price. As Christians, we have within us God himself coming within to change us from the inside out. And by out, I mean not our appearance. He doesn't take your wrinkles away. He doesn't take your gray hairs away. He doesn't take your extra body fat away. He doesn't take any of that away, does he? But He does change us from the inside out, meaning He causes us to live differently. He changes what's in our hearts so that what comes out of our mouth is different. He sanctifies us. He, he starts in our, in our heart, in our mind, in our thoughts, and changes us from the inside. This is something that religious people simply do not get. I want to show you a string of passages here, starting in John 14, 23. Consider this amazing truth that Jesus taught. He said, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him and we, capital W, will come to him and make our abode with him. That's amazing. That's amazing. If you are in Christ, you have as your body the abode of the Father and the Son. This earthen vessel containing the most precious light, the most precious treasure. In Galatians chapter four, verses four through six, It says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And listen to the result. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Father, Son, Spirit. You are totally equipped, Christian. You are totally equipped lavished with riches of God Himself, God who is light, Father, Son, Spirit, visiting you, being with you, caring for you. This is something that religious people, those who depend on their own works, simply do not understand. Those who reject the gospel, those who are blinded by Satan, those who refuse to believe that they have a problem, that they need the light to shine in the darkness of their own hearts... They try to change the outside. They skip the inside. They try to change the outside and that will never work. In Matthew 23, Jesus is going off on the Pharisees and the scribes. And he says, starting in verse 25, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. These Pharisees and scribes who were experts in the law, Jesus says they are filled with Lawlessness. What do they need? Well, they need to be changed from the inside out. You can wash that earthen vessel all you want. You can paint the clay pot. You can make it look real pretty. But that is not going to change your standing before God, is it? You can convince everyone around you. You can convince your family. You can convince your neighbors. You can convince me. But God sees the heart. God knows the heart, and we must be cleaned from the inside out. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 4 here that God's purpose for indwelling and doing this is to teach us our dependency as creatures, as His redeemed children. Notice in verse 7, we get that key phrase, so that we have this treasure in clay clay pots in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. God is displaying His power and His strength in our frailty, in our weakness, in our utter dependency. He is showing that He is dependent on no one. In our total weakness, which we are weaker than we know, I would say, most of the time, He is displaying His power. And Paul knew this very well. Let's not forget the author of this letter and what he went through in his life. Paul knows the power of God and how that is displayed in times of weakness. If you go with me to chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians, just turn forward a couple of pages, we'll read about Paul's thorn in the flesh. Paul had a constant torment from this thorn that Jesus refused to take away. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 7, it says, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, For this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And He has said to me, "'My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness.'" Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Look at verse 10. You've got you to gotta catch this verse. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. J.I. Packer said, speaking of this verse, God highlights the weakness of those whom He saves and uses so that nothing will rival or obscure His glory. Have you ever thought about that? When you're going through difficult times, when you're struggling through trial, when you're afflicted, when you're dealing with pain and suffering, God's reminding you that you're not Him. But He's doing so while He comforts you. He's doing so while He supplies the power. He's doing so while He pulls you through the trials of this life. So that your own thoughts about yourself would not rival His glory, but that He would be clearly seen as the glorious, all-powerful Creator God. In verse 7 of our text today, that is what Paul says. This happens so that the surpassing greatness of the power, the same word that's used for the revelations that Paul received, surpassing greatness of the power will be of God, not of ourselves. Consider our lives, our thorns, our adversaries, our insecurities, all of our imperfections. God is using us in spite of ourselves, isn't He? God is using us despite how we fall short, and He's showing His great power. This word for surpassing greatness here just means ultra, mega, super duper power. That's what I learned in Greek class. That's what that means. It means ultra, mega power because God will always accomplish His purposes through us no matter what we're going through, no matter how down and out it seems to us, no matter how we might feel like giving up, like it's a lost cause. It doesn't matter because it's not a lost cause to God. He will accomplish His purposes and you cannot thwart His plans. He puts us in situations of trial to teach us this that He doesn't need us. Amazingly, He wants us. Amazingly, He desires to use us, though He has no need whatsoever. And He will accomplish His purposes through us. And His design is that we will come through with a more sanctified recognition of His place and our place, that we'll have a holier understanding of who He is and who we are. That's what He does in the trial. He's the reason we come through hardship, whether we recognize that or not, and He deserves all glory. But for His children, our trials are more than just simple reminders. Our trials are great lessons. Sometimes our foolishness is exposed. Sometimes our hardship is because of ourselves, and God is faithful to show that to us. That can be a difficult lesson to learn. At other times, we are just suffering at the hands of the world and God's sovereignty, no matter what the circumstances, will be magnified in us as He graciously continues to work to bring us through this life. And Paul gives examples from his own life here in the next couple of verses. Look with me starting at verse 8 where he says, We are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed, perplexed, but not despairing, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Paul here is looking at the events of his own life and giving God the praise for God's faithful deliverance, the way God has shown himself to be faithful, the good, all-powerful God that he is. He says, we, in verse 8, he's using plural pronouns here, and he's referring to his company. It's not just his own life, but those who were with him as they traveled around going through difficult things, they were experiencing these difficult things for Christ, they were going through hardship for the sake of the gospel. Missionaries, church planners, going out to reach people for Jesus. This is what they went through. Affliction, persecution, being struck down, but not destroyed. They mentioned this before back in chapter 1. He, they talk about their affliction that they suffered in Asia. And here, they're bringing it up again. Paul is saying, they have been afflicted, but they haven't been crushed Look at verse 8 with me again. Afflicted, but not crushed. That means they've been squeezed, but not without a way out. They've, the world has tried to put them into a corner, but they've not been trapped. They've been pressed. Your translation might say pressed. It's a good translation. They've been pressed, but they haven't been confined. Even if just in their hearts and minds, there's been a way out, a way of escape. They've had assurance from God. He says, too, that they've been perplexed or confused, yet not despairing. Now, now all of these have to do with their personal suffering for Christ as ministers of the gospel, but they all have a general application to life, too, don't they? And I think maybe this one has the most general application. Perplexed? Any of you perplexed in here? Any of you get confused about life? Any of you wonder why certain things have to happen the way they do? I do. There are many times I'm perplexed. I'm confused. I just don't have answers. I don't know how to make sense of certain things. But even though we're perplexed, just like Paul and his company, we do not have to be despairing. They were confused, but not to the point of giving up. They were turned around, but not to the point of quitting, not to the point of just throwing their hands up in the air and saying, it's all over. Perplexed not despairing, persecuted, not forsaken. All these things they were going through as as men were trying to stop their efforts to reach the world for Christ, to prevent the spread of the gospel, that's persecution. But even in that, even though they were in trouble with man, they were never in trouble with God. No matter what you're going through in this life, dear Christian, if you are in Christ, if you've been chosen, beloved by God, if you are found in Him and you have all the assurances from your Father because you've been saved, you've been born again, you can bet this, you can guarantee this, you can have full assurance of this, no matter what is happening to you in the world, no matter what your neighbor is doing to you, no matter what your fellow man is doing to you, you will never, ever be forsaken by God. You might be persecuted, but never forsaken. Those Christians this week who were persecuted for their faith, who were killed for their faith, they were not forsaken by God. They were forsaken by their fellow man, but they were not forsaken by God. They went directly into the presence of God for them to die as gain. And for Paul, no matter where he was and his companions... he. Paul was never alone in prison. He had God. Father, Son, Spirit. He was out in, in the ocean. He was at sea, but not alone. In the wilderness, he was hungry. He was, he was tired, but he wasn't alone. And you too, no matter what you're going through in this life, if you have God, you're never alone. If you have God, Jesus, in your heart, you're never forsaken. And He's made the promise. This is a once-for-all promise. He's made the promise, and it's a good promise. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Just as He told Joshua, that promise is true for you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. You may be struck down in this life, but you will never be destroyed. Because God is the one who holds your hand. Paul here says in this last couplet, struck down, not destroyed, meaning he's been put to the ground, but he's not been put underground, right? He's been knocked down, but he's not been knocked out. You might remember from his missionary trip to Galatia where they stoned him to death, so they thought, and they, they walked away and they thought Paul was dead, but boop, popped right back up and he was back preaching. He was back living for Jesus he was put down, but he was not put out. He carried on as God gave him strength and led him through this life. To paraphrase a hit song from a few years ago, he got knocked down, but he got up again, didn't he? That was Paul's life. He was experiencing God's power constantly, and so was Silas and Timothy and all of his traveling companions. And what is happening in these events? Well, God's Spirit is causing worship to increase, what happens when you go through the hard things of life? Your worship goes up. Hopefully, humility goes up with it. As you see God's hand, God's faithful hand, His fatherly care in your life, though you don't deserve it at all, you've done nothing to earn it, but this is purely out of His love, motivated by His own love. Your worship increases. Humility should increase. God proves Himself able, He proves Himself faithful absolutely able to accomplish his purposes. And no matter what the world throws at us, he's going to continue building his church, saving a people for his own glory, magnifying his own name. I, I use this word often through this book, through this series, because Paul does too. The word minister, like minister of the gospel or missionary. There are, there are of course, um, Certain official capacities you can have. You know, I could tell someone I'm a pastor, I'm a minister. Don't really use that term very often. It just seems cold for some reason. You know, I'm a minister. It seems very official. Uh, though if I ever get a nameplate made for me, make sure to put reverend on there. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> but the truth be told, we are all ministers, aren't we, of the gospel? I don't want us to ever get that bifurcation in our minds that there are just a certain class of people who are ministers of the gospel. I mean, I guess that's true in one sense. It's Christians. All Christians are ministers of the gospel. And as ministers, we are so imperfect. We, we fall so short. We, we fumble over our words. We don't say the right things at the right time, so we think. We fall short of, of following through when we think we need to follow through, and, and we just, we feel it. We know we're imperfect. But the good news of this message here today that we see in this passage is that despite our weaknesses, despite even our own sin, the Lord accomplishes His will as He uses us. The Lord still uses you, as imperfect as you are, as far short as you fall, God still uses you. Again, I I said this last week, our ministry is glorious, but we are not. Despite that, God uses us. He's at work in the ministry. In our weaknesses, in our imperfection, God has seen fit to use us and to build His church to establish His kingdom through our work. In Homer Kent's commentary, he wrote, Paul wants no one to mistake the true nature of the Christian message in comparison to the significance of the minister. The human instrument is weak and expendable. The message is vital and of inestimable value. Paul understood this in his own life. Even as an apostle, he knew he was weak. He told the Corinthians in his first letter in 1 Corinthians 2:3, I came to you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. He had no celebrity pastor mindset. There was no green room where he got his hair done before he took the stage before the Corinthians. He was with them in weakness and in trembling. Scars, certainly, all over his body from what he had gone through in the years leading up to that moment. We are weak, but God is strong. And this all relates to the life and death of Jesus that continually works in believers. Let's pick it up in verse 10. Through all of these things, Paul says, "...we are always carrying about in the body the dying of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our body." For we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, but life in you. Jesus' life and death plays a continual role in our lives as we go about living for God and serving God. It's an interesting phrase, perhaps not the way you would immediately phrase it in verse 10. We always go about caring about in the body the dying of Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? We're caring about the dying of Jesus. The dying of Jesus is always carried about in us as we live for Him. Perhaps you'll remember what Paul said in his first letter to the Corinthians, I die daily, he said. The result of us caring about the dying of Jesus in our bodies is that each day we die. We die to the world. We die to ourselves. We die to our own sinful desires as we live for God. And this is because we have unity with Christ, that his dying is in us continually. We have such unity with Christ that it can be said that you are carrying about in your earthen vessel, in your clay pot, the dying of Jesus, a precious, precious jewel. Remember, the crucifixion of Christ is foolishness to the world, but for those of us who are being saved, it's what? The power of God. The dying of Jesus is precious to us. It's a precious treasure. It's a part of that light that we have from God. And we are so unified with Him that His dying is in us. In Acts chapter 9 that we looked at last week, when Jesus met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus, He asked Saul, who was persecuting Christians, Why are you persecuting me? Because the killing of the church is the persecution of Jesus himself. The persecution of God's people is seeking to persecute God. We have this great unity with Jesus. In Colossians 1 verse 24, Paul again wrote to that church saying, "...I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church." and filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. That's an extreme unity that Paul saw with Jesus, that his afflictions were filling up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the church, because we read in our passage today that this death actually produces life. When we suffer for Christ, it is not loss, but it is gain. When we suffer on behalf of our savior, this is honorable, this is good, because this is a part of our calling as Christians. There are many people who call themselves Christians today who have not heard that this is our calling. Perhaps some of you in this room today have come to claim the name of Christ because you heard that there was something good for you on the other side. Now there is, there's eternal life. But perhaps you thought there was something of earthly good for you, of earthly benefit, that there was something that would satisfy your flesh, that there's something that would satisfy the desires of your flesh. That is not what Jesus promises. That's not the call of the gospel. The call to believe and follow Jesus is not that life will get easy. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus offering the call of discipleship said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Always caring about in your body the dying of Jesus. Take up your cross daily, the cross of Jesus. Die daily, as Paul said he did. Day by day, through this life, if you are a Christian, God has called you to die. And in so doing, you are in the likeness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. You are with Him in the likeness of His death, in the likeness of His crucifixion. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, a marvelous verse, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's the Christian life. This directly counters the false gospel of health and wealth, doesn't it? This directly counters any kind of false gospel out there that says the good news is that you'll get stuff. The good news is that you'll never need to go to the doctor again. The good news is that you won't suffer. That's a cursed teaching from the pit of hell. For someone to teach that you will have an earthly life superior to that of your Savior that's your promise as people who follow Him with His cross? No. Your promise is that the world will hate you. The effects of sin will linger. There will be death. There will be a constant handing over to the world. There will be a constant dying. But you will have springs of eternal life flowing up from within. No matter how many strikes they blow to that clay pot that you got, No matter how many fiery arrows are aimed at the earthen vessel, no one can take that light from within. No matter how hard they try to bust and break what God has made, His purposes will stand, and the work that He has begun in you, He will see to it that it is completed until the day of Christ. Our ministry is glorious, even though we are not, and He uses us to accomplish His purposes. Paul affirms here in our passage today that they are constantly being delivered over. Verse 11, constantly delivered. This is the hatred of the enemy. This is the hatred of the world, but we find out this is just a channel for God's power, isn't it? The world may try to put out what God has started, but it's just a channel of His power. As we don't only go about dying We don't only get pushed closer to Jesus because we are in the likeness of his sufferings, but his life then is manifested in our bodies. His powerful life shines through even when we're afflicted. His life is is made much of, it's magnified, it's honored in our suffering because his power is displayed in us, in our suffering. Not in worldly success, but in our suffering. And I think this is evidenced by a few simple things, by starting off by our hope. I think we can see the life of Christ, not just the death of Christ, but the life of Christ in the hope that we have while we suffer. In adversity, as we struggle through this life, we continue to have faith because of His life working in us, because of His powerful life on display. We have hope, we have faith. This is a display, an evidence of His living power. We see it in our perseverance also, His glorious life on display in our suffering by our perseverance. As we serve the Lord despite the worldly consequences, as you go to work even though you've been shunned by your coworkers for talking to them about the gospel, as you try one more time to win that person over to Christ, that's an evidence of the life of God in you. That's evidence of the power of God that pushes you to talk about the light that's within because you just can't contain what God has put in your heart. As you go home today and you choose to lose that argument with your spouse, even though you still kind of think you're right, that's, that's evidence of God's life, God's power. As you in humility say, you know, I need to humble myself here. I need to make myself low. I need to prioritize the most important things over this The life of God in us is powerfully showing showing through as we're sanctified for His honor. We die every day, but we live every day. Again, from J.I. Packer, he wrote, Through the self-negations of love and obedience and the tribulations of pain and loss for Jesus' sake, We enter into a thousand little deaths day by day, and through the ministry of the Spirit, we rise out of those little deaths into constantly recurring experiences of risen life with Christ. That's a good word. It's not only by these things that Christ's life is shown in us, but you see verse 12 here. It's also in the reality that we have those who imitate our faith, those who believe because of our ministry. Paul writes, so death works in us, but life works in you. Christ's glorious life is displayed in our lives, even by our converts. That's an interesting way of thinking about that. It's not just through the things He's doing in your life personally, but those around you who have not only come to know the Lord through your ministry, but have grown in the Lord through your ministry. Those who who learn something from you, those who grow in their knowledge of God through your life, even though you may be suffering, that suffering is used as an example for that person to encourage that person, to teach that person something. The fruit of our labor, evidenced by conversions, is a sign of Christ's life. And Paul had this perspective through his whole ministry. He wrote to those Colossians saying that he's he's going through these sufferings for their sake and he's happy to do it. He's pleased to lay his life down on the altar and say, I'll go through whatever it takes that my brothers and sisters in these various places would know more of God and grow in their relationship with God. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, Paul's about to die and listen to his perspective at the end of his life. He says to Timothy, the young pastor, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, descendant of David, according to my gospel. For which I suffer hardship even to imprisonment as a criminal, but the word of God is not imprisoned. Oh, awesome verse. For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. That's a great passage. And that's a great perspective on life. He was constantly delivered over, but he saw that as constantly laying down his life for the sake of the church. Laying down his life, his preferences, his privileges, his prerogatives. Would he have rather been on a vacation in Rome than traveling to Rome under threat of persecution? Probably. I imagine all of us would rather do that in our flesh, right? But Paul gave up his life for the church, showing Jesus' love, as he was caring about the dying of Jesus and the life of Jesus. In these things, Christ's life is revealed through us to the glory of God. Despite the ways that the world tries to stamp out the life, as the world tries to have their darkness overcome the light that's within us, as the world tries to rob us of our treasure from God, God's purposes will stand, won't they? Man cannot put out the life of God, and God's children are never without his life. We have constantly a comfort, an assurance of the life and light of God contained within. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for saving us and never leaving or forsaking us. You have saved us for a purpose in this life and in what is to come, and we ask that today, as we're living for you in this fallen place with all the trials, all the affliction, all the hardship, that we would honor you rightly, that we would be empowered by your spirit to proclaim with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and to present ourselves as servants to others. You've done this amazing work in Paul's life and in the life of other apostles and other believers for the last 2,000 years. And Lord, we ask that we would be a part fully, all in, both feet, a total all-in part of this living for, dying for, suffering for Jesus. Use us as instruments in your hand for your glory as you build your kingdom, as your word accomplishes its purposes. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.